I guess the first thing I would encourage listeners to take away is anybody who says that there's an absolutely clear answer on any of these constitutional um, uh, questions is wrong. As lockdown measures begin to ease up, we thought we would explore the constitutional questions they raised. Joining me in this conversation is my co-host Michael Otteson and KU Law Professor Richard Levy. In this episode, we take a look at what sort of textual, institutional, and political restrictions there are in limiting just what our federal, state, and local governments are able to do in combating the current pandemic. And at one point, our conversation takes a short diversion into the misuse of power our government has overseen during national emergencies. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. If you like this episode or generally what we are all about, we hope you subscribe and donate. And as always, we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to this episode of Lawrence Talks. I'm your host, David Tamez, and I am joined by my co-host, Michael Otteson. The topic of our show today is the Constitution in the time of COVID-19. Joining us to help uh, help us navigate these questions uh, is KU Law Professor Richard Levy. Richard, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for asking me. Before we begin our discussion, uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and, and your research? Well, I don't know how far back you want to go. I grew up in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, I went to KU as an undergrad and got a master's degree in actually German literature before I went off to law school in Chicago. I clerked for a federal judge, came back, joined the KU law faculty in 1985. I've been on the law school faculty since that time. I teach and write primarily in the areas of administrative and constitutional law, um, and my research and work on those topics runs a, a pretty broad gamut of issues. Probably I concentrate a little more on structural issues than individual rights issues, but I really am, I have a pretty broad range of interests uh, on those kinds of matters. Okay, great. And so uh, our discussion today is we want to address some of the questions uh, that have been raised by the public or the public might uh, need to know about in order to assess just what uh, what is all involved in terms of the law and responding to pandemics like the COVID-19. Like COVID um, uh, and so there have been a number of questions about the sort of measures that have been passed in response to, in response to the pandemic, namely the uh, stay-at-home orders um, and the sort of issues about rights and uh, and general questions about the law uh, that those measures bring up. In order to sort of begin that discussion, I'd like to, uh, I think one good place to start is with the text itself. What does the text of the Constitution say about 
this sort of situation we are in, or at least how the courts are, how the courts and how our government uh, can or cannot respond uh, in mitigating some of the issues a pandemic might bring to our communities. Well, the short answer to that is nothing um, in the sense (laughs) that if you're looking for language in the Constitution that specifically addresses questions like quarantine, stay-at-home orders, how to respond in the event of uh, pandemics and other kinds of um, circumstances, there isn't anything specific in the Constitution. It's a written as a general blueprint for the structure and powers of government and individual rights, but it's actually remarkably short and limited in terms of the things that it specifically addresses. It contains a lot of provisions that bear on actions that have been taken that have to be interpreted and applied, but it doesn't really contain any provisions that specifically address the kinds of questions that we're asking or discussing today. I had a question I wanted to uh, ask on this because one thing that I was curious about to, to learn more about is that I think I've seen from cantankerous types online kind of assertions that the lockdowns are obviously a violation of our First Amendment rights to assembly. And one th- so a question I've had on my mind, because I, I, I mean, that no right is absolute in the U.S. Constitution. Almost everything in the Bill of Rights is, is there some circumstances in which you can't, you know, you can't even, yeah, Second Amendment types, even, you know, you can't have a grenade launcher or something like that. No one thinks that violates the First Amendment. That's not an absolute right to bear arms. Now, however, when the government does want to kind of uh, curtail your, say, First Amendment rights to assemble in some contexts, they have to, for instance, if they want to arrest you, uh, the the uh, prosecutor has to demonstrate to the courts, the judiciary, probable cause um, if they want to search your home or if they want to arrest you. And then that's the kind of standard, like if they think, if it's, if they think there's some criminal activity going on, they can get a warrant for your arrest or something like that, or a warrant to search your house. And that way it would, it would uh, not violate the Fourth Amendment, I believe, to unreasonable search and seizure. And so uh, also, you know, if they want to detain you indefinitely, they can't. There's rules of habeas corpus that suggests that if they're going to detain you, they have to charge you. And if they charge you, they have to demonstrate to a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt that you've committed a crime and then thus detain you in that way. And that sort of stuff happens all the time, right? That's, that's the, you know, the most, you know, criminal law. People break the law all the time or are accused of breaking the law all the time, and this is hashed out in the courts. Something that I was curious about when thinking through the lockdowns is that lockdowns for pandemics are considerably less common, so I don't know if there's as much, like, jurisprudence in the history of the United States on this question, but what I wanted to know more about, maybe you could tell us, is under what circumstances uh, have the courts determined that the United States, that the government can kind of um, curtail your right to assembly uh, or curtail your right to worship in particular places as you see fit? Obviously, you know, buildings have to have fire codes and stuff like that. You can't have 
you know, as many people as you want in a particular building. So that's one way we curtail it. Well, why? What's the exact justification for why we can do something like that? And I'm curious, like, what are the kind of stand? Are there standards that the government must like meet in order to impose lockdowns or force people to stay home? And and um, like, are there those standards? And 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 what are they? And should they be what they are? That's a long and complicated question. Let me begin by trying to clarify two kinds of protections of rights that you sort of mush together in in the question. So when we talk about a criminal violation, we have a statute, and the statute prohibits certain kinds of conduct. Um, And one constitutional question might be whether the statute's prohibition on conduct violates constitutional rights. Yes. a second kind of question arises, assuming that you have a valid statute that limits what people can do, there are procedural safeguards that come yes. to play in deciding whether or not an individual has violated the statute. So things like trial, yes. proof beyond a reasonable yes. doubt, all of that assumes that you have a valid statute that doesn't violate rights. That's right. Murder can be illegal, but even then, the government has to meet certain standards of evidence in order to enforce that statute against you. Exactly. So if if we're talking about, uh, let's say, a a stay-at-home order or some other kind of emergency order limiting gatherings, there are there might be two separate questions. One question would be whether the order is valid. Yes. And then another question might be, is there a violation of the order in what a particular individual has done? And there you would have procedural safeguards and proof. Now, my understanding of your question and most of the objections that I've heard of, at least in relation to lockdown orders, goes to the first kind of issue, which is do the orders themselves violate rights? Are the orders valid or invalid? And I've seen much less concern about the process for determining whether an individual has violated one of these orders. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, I I did mush those things together, though I was, I guess, trying to draw an analogy between the fact that part of the the government does not have rights in this country to indefinitely detain you. That's that's correct. And, And yeah. So, uh, so going to your you you raise two kinds of substantive limitations that might restrict the ability to impose a lockdown order. One would be freedom of assembly uh, or the right to peaceably assemble, and the second would be freedom of religion. Now, there's also a variety of other kinds of rights or constitutional doctrines that might come into play. Absolutely. Focusing on the two that you identified. So I I don't think that there is a historical or constitutional precedent, at least none that I'm aware of, that specifically addresses the, the kinds of limitations that these orders place on the right to peaceably assemble. There are a lot of cases dealing with what you might call uh, incendiary political um, gatherings in which a a speaker is either inciting or potentially inciting an audience 
to engage in violent or otherwise unlawful activity, or uh, the audience is so hostile to the speaker that um, they threaten violence or, or there might be violence as a result of opposition to what the speaker has said. And we, we generally also have situations where nowadays we have protests and counter-protests and there might be issues of, of violence there. Um, the precedents historically dealing with those kinds of issues have used what's referred to as the clear and present danger standard, um, which you may have heard of uh, from a famous Oliver Wendell Holmes opinion. That's also the opinion where the uh, fire in a crowded room. You don't have a right to uh, actually falsely yeah, right. in a cry, uh, fire <laughs> in a crowded room. <laughs> right. And, and so those cases recognize that even though the First Amendment may be written in terms that appear to be absolute and create an unlimited right to peaceably assemble or to free speech or to freedom of religion, there comes a point in which the countervailing governmental interest is sufficiently strong to justify restrictions. Nowadays, I think most of these kinds of questions would be resolved using what's called strict scrutiny mm. as a test for the validity of uh, laws or other kinds of governmental action. And when strict scrutiny applies, the government would have to articulate a compelling governmental interest and show that the restriction is either necessary and or narrowly tailored to meet that interest. I, I think the government has a pretty strong case that there's a compelling governmental interest in, in preventing the spread of a pandemic. And a lot of the uh, litigation would probably focus on whether there are alternatives available that would be less burdensome on the right, and so as to, to document whether or not the order is really necessary in order to prevent the spread of the uh, pandemic. There may also be questions about whether the order is either over-inclusive or under-inclusive. Uh, it would be over-inclusive if it applied more broadly than necessary in order to achieve its goals. It would be under-inclusive if it only targets part of the uh, needed group and leaves other, uh, or needed restrictions and leaves other activities untouched. Uh, that tends to suggest a kind of bad motive. If you're willing to shut down some people's uh, assemblies and not other people's assembly. Are you really about protecting against the pandemic or are you using that as essentially an opportunity to suppress groups that you disagree with? Yeah, and this would have been in part the response to the freedom of religion charge because you can shut down churches because you're shutting down everything, yes, um, all gatherings above a certain number. And so the law would the the order would only be unconstitutional on these grounds if you only targeted churches as opposed to other large gatherings. I think that may be stating it too broadly. So okay. in general, your your point is a correct one. So uh, in uh, a case called Oregon Division of Employment versus Smith, the Supreme Court ruled that a, a neutral and generally applicable law would not trigger strict scrutiny. And instead, the court would apply a much 
uh, less rigorous form of analysis known as the rational basis test. And under the rational basis test, this sort of neutral law is valid as long as it serves a legitimate governmental purpose and is reasonably related to that purpose. So in Oregon versus Smith, the court upheld the application of laws against the use of peyote as applied to individuals who use peyote as part of a religious practice in the Native American church. And the court said, well, the the rule against peyote is neutral, um, and therefore it doesn't trigger uh, strict scrutiny. So I think the premise that you start with is generally correct. The cases, at least as I understand to this point dealing with the pandemic orders, have actually come to mixed conclusions about whether these orders are neutral or not neutral in relation to, to religion. And a lot of that may depend on the specific order. The key issue in these cases tends to be, well, these orders do not actually ban everybody. They contain exceptions for essential um, activities. And uh, the courts that have found violations of freedom of religion have said, well, you created exceptions for some essential activities, but not for religion. I see. Um, And therefore, this law discriminates against religion. And and then they apply strict scrutiny. And when they apply strict scrutiny, they conclude, well, you could have less restrictive alternatives. You could allow religious gatherings, but require masks and social distancing uh, distancing and and that sort of thing um, without absolutely banning um, uh, those kinds of issues, uh, excuse me, those kinds of of, uh, gatherings. And I think this tends to highlight if you don't mind a little bit of an editorial here, it tends to highlight the deep divide uh, in the United States over religion in the sense that uh, one group within our society views religious gatherings as essential. Yes. um, And another group within our society would say, no, they're not essential. And uh, that probably has a lot to do with the underlying religious beliefs of those who are involved. Yeah, I had I was having a conversation with a Catholic friend that argued that argued that the Eucharist is essential. It's the it's the literal grace of God, um, and therefore mass should still take place, perhaps in a socially distanced way, such that you would limit the number of people in the church at a particular time, or you would try to make some sort of accommodation. But in, yeah, in this I'm person's not- I'm not entirely sure how you do the Eucharist. No, I'm not either. Distance <laughs> or wear masks and 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 do that. But um, uh, yeah, so I think the majority of the courts that have considered these orders have concluded that they're neutral as okay. religion um, and upheld them. But some courts have struck them down, and uh, in some measure, that seems to reflect a kind of red state, blue states divide yeah. uh, that seems to affect every everything that that we do. Um, it's also potentially relevant to note in regard to this question that in addition to the United States Constitution, each state has its own constitution, yeah. and each state's constitution has its own protections for freedom of religion. And those states might provide greater protection for religious gatherings than U.S. Supreme Court precedent would allow. 
Um, and in fact, that's a position that the attorney general of the state of Kansas has taken about the Kansas Constitution, so that under the, that view, even a neutral law might have to meet higher levels of scrutiny and higher burdens of justification in, in order to pass muster if it burdens religious practices. Uh, that sort of a rule would require exceptions from some kinds of laws for religious observances. A lot of those kinds of exceptions are already sort of written in. We have exceptions in our tax laws for churches. We have exceptions to um, employment discrimination laws for uh, churches and religious institutions, right? The Catholic Church can decide not to ordain women as priests without violating Title VII. Yes. And uh, we allow, for example, minors to consume alcohol in yes. connection with religious observances. So it's entirely possible that exceptions might be written into laws uh, allowing religious observances. And in some states, the state constitution might require those kinds of exceptions, absent compelling reasons not to. So I, I think there's clearly a limit to that. If you had a religion that practiced human sacrifice, right. um, there would probably not have to be an exception written into that law for that religion. <laughs> but on other kinds of things, particularly regulations for which the public harm is harder to identify um, or more limited, then exceptions might be written in. Yeah, thank you. That's that's extraordinarily enlightening, and th yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear how kind of courts and and statutes and state constitutions in the history of our country have kind of dealt with these sorts of of, of questions surrounding uh, religious exceptions. I wanted to also kind of pick up another thread of of what we were talking about because you you talk about these this the standard of strict scrutiny. Uh -huh. um, and what I'm kind of curious about is, I, I'm not, I, I want to make clear at the onset, I am not saying that COVID is the flu. It doesn't have, like, I understand COVID is far more dangerous than the flu, not only in terms of absolute mortality, but also hospitalization rates. But I wanted to kind of think about, think through this in, in the context of the flu. So let's say that a state governor came out and said in in uh when you know sometime where there's not covid going along they came out and said our state is having a you know problems with the flu you know and this is true right we have flu vaccines lots of people die of the flu every year um and they say i think that we should have a lockdown in order to prevent the spread of the flu like a normal kind of run-of-the-mill influenza because that's going to save lives. Now, most governors have not done this in the past. And let's say that, you know, this hypothetical governor is doing this now. What kind of, like, and let's say that somebody says this is not right. There are other ways of preventing flu transmission. Um, this disease isn't disease. People die of lots of diseases uh, not all of the diseases that are contagious and can kill people are deadly enough or deadly enough in enough cases to justify extreme lockdown such that everyone has to stay at home and they petition the courts. How would the courts, like, what kind of, what would using strict scrutiny uh, entail for determining whether or not the spread of a particular infectious disease warrants 
stay-at-home orders and the curtailing of of otherwise normal economic activity. Uh, okay, so let me let me begin by making the general point that within our constitutional structure of government, the first and primary check on um, poor policy adopted by either a governor or a legislature is a political check. Yes, voting. And 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 so one thing to bear in mind would be courts understanding of whether or not to intervene would be potentially influenced by their perception that this is primarily a political matter for resolution mm. by the ordinary political and legislative processes rather than by judicial intervention. And that's why in an ordinary case, the courts will be very deferential to uh, actions that that restrict uh, absolute freedom to do whatever it is that you want. And it's only when some particular right has been burdened in a particular way that the court would then apply strict scrutiny uh, to to the law. Um, and so a threshold question in any of these cases would be what right has been burdened and has the right been in a way that would trigger the application of strict scrutiny as opposed to a more deferential rational basis test. There's also some kinds of liberties that would be under more of a balancing approach rather than a strict scrutiny or rational basis test kind of approach. So uh, the threshold step for the analysis would be deciding what right is burdened and does the burden, what kind of scrutiny does the burden on the right trigger in the in the court. If it's the rational basis test that applies, the burden is on the party challenging the law mm. to show that no rational policymaker could reach the conclusion that the policymaker in this particular case did. So they would have to negate the justification based on the flu. They would have to show that the costs of the order are so extreme that no rational policymaker could consider them to be worth it. Uh, I don't know whether or not that is likely to be possible under, under these circumstances. If, on the other hand, uh, strict scrutiny is triggered, then the burden on the is on the state to show by clear evidence that the measure taken is necessary, both that there's a problem that's severe enough to justify taking action and that the action is appropriately tailored to that problem. So in your hypothetical scenario, we would sort of have to ask, well, is the law going to trigger strict scrutiny or the rational basis test? Yeah. And then we would also have to think about what's the evidence that could be mustered to support the need for imposing the order. And if we're talking, I mean, and, and not all flus are equal. No, they're not. Their deadliness. I mean, the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 was uh, very deadly. Absolutely. Um, and and so just calling it the flu wouldn't eliminate 
a justification for lockdown order or something. No, like. I, I was imagining something more like run of the mill. Like we normally have flu season in the United States where it's not an avian flu or a swine flu that's like wrecking havoc on the population in the way that the Spanish flu was. And I guess that was, that was what I was curious about. Like could a, like constitutionally would the courts allow a governor to look at a flu that I don't know, you know, has a fatality rate of 0.001% or something like that. Or, I mean, I don't know exactly what the fat, normal fatality rate of the flu is, but something, something along those lines. Yeah. I think there's even a, a there, there are some other legal issues that would be involved there that might prevent the court even from getting to the constitutional rights question. So uh, governors don't generally have the authority to issue these kinds of orders except in cases of emergency, and those are pursuant to statutory delegation right. authority. And so I think it's more likely that a court would look at the ordinary flu and say that's not an emergency, and the governor has exceeded her authority in issuing an order requiring people to stay at home for a non-emergency. If the legislature were to adopt a statute doing a lockdown, then that issue would disappear. But that seems to me uh, unlikely. Um, so I, it's hard for me to predict without a lot more factual detail um, about just how serious the flu is, just what kind of evidence and justification was involved, what kind of order was involved um, in terms of its scope and duration and severity and all of those sorts of things. I think that it's likely that uh, something along the lines of what was done in the event of uh, uh, to, to address COVID in Kansas and many other states would, would probably not hold up if it was done for or, ordinary flu. Yeah, that, that's very interesting because, I, I mean, I was briefly looking at some of these state statutes surrounding lockdowns and in some cases, they're not super specific about what a state, what constitutes a state of emergency, yeah, which is no, why no. I was kind of curious. Like, because I mean, and again, I'm again, I'm not saying that that this is happening in the case of COVID. I'm just interested in this from a civil libertarian perspective, where a government like China can basically say whatever you know that their legal system, such as it is, is essentially that the government gets to decide um, what a state of emergency is. There's no sorts of constitutional protections built in that a citizen could appeal to. They could just say, there's a state of emergency. There's no standard of proof that we have to meet to impose that sort of standard. It can extend indefinitely. Um, and I was just kind of curious how like the courts would deal with, with the, how they might evaluate states of emergency and these sorts of orders in the context of our system where there are limits on government authority to institute lockdowns and stuff like that. Well, let, let's remember that the courts are part of the government. Yes, that's right. And and so even though we tend to think of the courts as a check on government, they are also part of government. So it's an, an internal uh, checking system. Yes, yes. Um, and, and I emphasize that because um, I, I think over the... 200 plus years of the Constitution, um, we, we've seen that courts can be more or less captive 
yes. of the political branches and um, more or less aligned with their policy preferences. Um, so the mere fact that we have a court available that, that might stand up for civil liberties doesn't mean that they will uh, stand up for civil liberties. So if we think about, for example, the Japanese internment Korematsu, in yeah. World War II, um, we, we find the court essentially accepting what turns out in historical hindsight to have been false representations by the government about the need for, for, for this kind of uh, internment. Um, in the Hawaii versus Trump case, um, we also had the court deferring to the president. I'm glad you brought up Korematsu because I was going to ask questions about it. Because, you know, the, the, the majority position in Korematsu, the kind of like justification, as I understand it, was essentially a deference to the executive branch, right? Ah, national security. And, and I guess that gets into perhaps a normative question about constitutional law, because I think that's egregious. I think everyone agrees that Korematsu is an egregious decision, that this wow. is, it's ridiculous that the judiciary deferred to the Roosevelt administration on this. You know, this was a clear violation of civil liberties. And so then, be, be, before you get there, yeah. let me ask you, is it more ridiculous that the court deferred or that the Roosevelt administration lied to the court? Uh, can I go with both? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I think it, 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 it matters because if you believe institutionally that courts should respect the province of the president in matters of national security, then it may not be so egregious to say, well, they've right. got their own national security information that we can't really look behind. Right. And the problem wasn't so much that they refused to look behind as it was the willingness of the administration to misrepresent what was in that information. Yes. Um, and, and, and so it sort of underscores, I think, what potentially is lost if political actors lose their credibility in terms of the proper institutional relationships between the courts, the Congress, and the executive branch. Yeah, this, this is, and I'm so glad that you, you put it this way, because this is, I, 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 am, I tend to be a civil libertarian about these sorts of things. And so I find the court's repeated reticence to challenge the executive branch on issues of national security, absolutely maddening. The war on terror would be a prominent example of that, where I think that the, the administration was doing things and the courts just have this history of deference in terms of like the Patriot Act, <laughs> in terms of these other issues of civil liberties, and they, they, they're just hands off. And yeah, I guess I'm putting my cards on the table, but I find this kind of infuriating because it seems like there is no judi judicial check on executive power in this sphere. And so I, and I that guess goes, that goes back a long, long time. It does. Way. It really does. So, you know, I don't want to overstate things in this regard, but I'm reminded of a speech that was given by a uh, 
a federal court of appeals judge named Learned Hand, a great name by yes, the way, yeah, yeah, right for a, for a judge. But the only name that I think really comp- compares with that was a judge down in the Fifth Circuit whose name was Minor Wisdom. Uh, John Minor Wisdom, which I thought was a you know beautiful name for a judge <laughs> as well. Uh, but um, Learned Hand gave a speech called "The Spirit of Liberty," and I can't you know I don't want to try to paraphrase it, but the essential point that that he made was that the protection or preservation of liberty was really dependent upon the political will of the people yeah. rather than the courts. And, and that um, if the people uh, sort of stopped believing in the spirit of liberty and demanding the protection of their liberties, the courts weren't going to save them. And, and, you know, to a certain extent, he also said, and, and, and if they do protect liberties, they don't really need the courts uh, uh, to be acting on their behalf. And so I, I, and, and I, I, I do think that it's a lot to expect in the time of war, particularly a, a war that seemed to be for uh, existential existence, like World War II, to expect the court to essentially stand up to a popular commander-in-chief on matters of, of national security. And I think that the same kind of reluctance in the wake of uh, 9-11 is not entirely surprising. Um, no, no, I think you're right. It's it's not surprising. And I think also back to World War One and the kind of things that the Wilson administration yeah, was, yeah. was doing. I mean, again, I think most people now are appalled when they learn about what the Wilson administration was doing in terms of curtailing civil liberties on those same national security grounds. Right, right. And a lot of the early free speech cases involve, uh, you know, prosecutions of people who were speaking out against the U.S. involvement in the war and in, in World War uh, one, but you know, Lincoln wasn't great about civil no. liberties <laughs> war, um, and uh, <laughs> you know, we have in in, in the uh, early part of the 19th century, we have the Alien and Sedition Acts that yes. were used to you know round up and imprison people who are critical of the Adams administration. So, I the history of the Supreme Court. I think if you, as, as an observer, um, w- would be that at the times when it's most needed, it's generally been uh, absent in, right. in terms of, of protecting rights. And whether we're talking about you know, freedom of speech or protection against racial discrimination, uh, other kinds of things, it's, it, it, the court has more often than not been unwilling to take a strong position uh, against government abuse. Yeah, and and perhaps also part of the concern is kind of the the, uh, Indian Removal Act situation with the Jackson administration where the court and the names on the tip of my tongue, John Marshall, has made his decision now. Yes. Let them enforce it. Right. Yeah, that, that 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 may be apocryphal, but it is important for people to remember that the court 
is, you know, it's comprised of now nine people, none of whom have superpowers, right? They're not no. the Avengers, no. um, and they don't have the ability to defeat massive armies. They only, they only have the rule of law. That's right. Um, uh, behind them, and they can lose their institutional or political capital in getting involved in highly politicized matters. They're also appointed by politicians and have political connections and backgrounds often, more often than than uh, not historically. They had a, a, a political background and, and they tend to go along with the desires of the people that put them in office more more often than we might like to think. Yeah, that's right, which is why a lot of um, systems of government around the world don't put a great deal of emphasis in an independent judiciary or a written constitution for this reason, right? So in the British system, there's an unwritten constitution and the ultimate check on parliament or the authority of the prime minister is the voters. Um, well, that, that's correct. Although in England now, or in Britain, I guess it used to be, maybe not anymore because of Brexit, but there's a, a there's a, an umbrella of European law that yes. can be enforced against parliament and by, by the judiciary. But, but I would say in you know the UK is is a, an interesting example because their customary norms of governance are very powerful um, historically, yes. um, and so there's a very strong norm of judicial independence, even though they don't have yes, that's uh, right. the, the same kinds of constitutional protections. Um, but in in practice, in most countries around the world, um, over time, um, the power of courts to strike down violations of the Constitution have been added. And uh, now they often use a different system. Our system is kind of unique in, in the sense that any court has the power to declare a law unconstitutional yes. in the context of an individual case. Um, a lot of other countries have special constitutional courts and special processes for getting to the review of the constitutional validity of legislation. But, but most of them have adopted some form of constitutional review by um, an independent Constitution, yeah, right. Because I, I think part of the argument is is precisely that we think that perhaps division of power in government or certain kind of constitutional checks, as assessed by the judiciary, is an important like check on majoritarianism and tyrannies of the majority and and things like that. Right, particularly as it comes to individual rights, and courts also play an important role as a a sort of neutral umpire in battles between other governmental entities like Congress and the president yes, right. or um, the, the national government and the, and the states. 
We're yeah. seeing that now with like there's a Supreme Court case that they just reviewed in terms of subpoenas of of Trump's uh, financial both both on the state level and where the right. House of Representatives has subpoenaed Trump's Trump's tax right and you can you can go back to the Nixon tapes case yes. uh, as a as as a pretty significant example of the court uh, weighing in on on that kind of separation of uh, of powers disputes but I I would like to sort of underscore. Going back to the general point, you know, just nine people with no superpowers, and in fact, most of them are relatively old and somewhat frail, so they're not really able to withstand the use of force. What what makes courts work in as as a check on the tyranny of the majority or on the abuse of power by one or the other branches of, uh, of government is the rule of law. And the idea that courts uh, have the responsibility for determining what the law means and applying it into individual cases. And then the idea that everyone, including the most powerful actors in government, will respect the, uh, the law. Um, yes, exactly. Well, that, that, that's the only that's the only check. I mean, the Constitution is just words on a paper. paper. It's only because people decide to abide by those rules, or perhaps will enforce them against people who violate them. That's the only reason anything ever works. That that's exactly right. So we have other countries who have written constitutions with you know long yes. lists of individual rights that are conveniently ignored yes. and the courts just go along with it um because or if the court makes a pronouncement that court is disbanded and and uh, and loses its authority so i i guess right now as a as an observer on these matters i'm less concerned with the courts going along than I am with the, I, the the sort of willingness of public officials increasingly to ignore the law, absolutely defy uh, judicial orders, and the lack of political consequences that have been attached to that kind of behavior. Because without the rule of law, all of this stuff is pretty meaningless. And I feel like we're at a time where the rule of law is very precarious. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, and I think that, I mean, again, I already kind of put my cards on the table, but I'm I'm a civil libertarian. I think what the Bush administration was doing um, with a lot of the, their policies was unconstitutional, and they didn't really pay an electoral penalty for that. Um, and, you know, what are you going to do at that point if if the voters won't punish an administration and, you know, for, I mean, this also applies to concerns around the Snowden affair and, you know, the kind of collection of metadata from and the Obama administration as well. And they have their own arguments about whether or not metadata is covered under the Constitution. Um, but it's a similar kind of national security argument that both the Obama administration and the Bush administration were putting forward in that case. And the voters didn't do anything, of you know, to to kind of, um, well, I'm not no. sure that's accurate. Um, so the Bush administration wasn't voted out of office, but Obama won and the, the Republicans lost. And um, Obama was reelected, but Hillary lost or 
at least at the electoral college uh, level. So I think that that, um, electoral penalties are hard to measure. They may not happen right away. It may take a while before the public sours on a a particular leader, especially when, in in the case of of, uh, the George W. Bush administration, you had sort of this coming together of the country in the wake of the 9-11 attacks that sort of gave him a huge boost in popularity and reflected a sort of strong desire for a strong response. It also takes a long, sometimes it takes a while for information about what's going on to get out there. So I think by the time a lot of the worst abuses of the Bush administration were public, the, the, he had already been reelected. There's two questions, and they're not really related, but I'll, I'll start I'll start with this one because we started talking about the individual powers of, of the agencies, the government agencies. Um, in one comment, I, I don't want to harp on Trump too much. But there was a there was a response he gave, uh, I think, last month to a question about uh, the executive power he has to uh, sort of limit what each state can do in terms of how uh, the the lockdown measures and so forth. Um, But but part of his response, he he said something that the, the powers of the president are absolute in these cases. And one one sort of. Uh growing theory that I'm aware of that that might argue for something like that is the executive unitary theory. It, uh, yeah, it's usually it's usually called the unitary executive theory. Unitary executive theory. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, that's just wrong. Um, okay. The fair. president's power is not absolute. Yes. Um, and and uh, the, the unitary executive theory uh, posits that the president has the absolute authority to direct the activities of the executive branch. And so some of the modern features of uh, what we might call the administrative state would be questionable, like independent agencies whose officers can only be removed for good cause by, by the president. But I'm not familiar with any theory of the unitary executive that would say the president is not bound by law. Now, the broadest theory of presidential power might give to the president a measure of authority that Congress could not interfere with, so that laws purporting to limit that authority would be constitutionally invalid. Uh, An example of that kind of circumstance that actually comes from the uh, Obama administration era was efforts by Congress to force recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Mm, um, yes. And the Supreme Court held that that statute was invalid because it interfered with the president's authority over diplomacy, which was absolute. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, as far as I'm aware, although there might be some very broad theories of presidential power, and of course, President Trump might like to believe that his power is absolute and unlimited, just as President Obama might have wanted to believe that and every president before. I'm not uh, familiar with any, what's the right word, um, 
any respected theory of the universal uh, universal executive that would allow the president authority unchecked authority to declare a national emergency and do whatever the president thinks is necessary in order to respond to that emergency um, and not be limited in any way by Congress. Yeah, this is interesting because um, Dershowitz, I think, got up during the impeachment trial of the president in the Senate and argued that insofar, like, there could be no abuse of power insofar as that power was specified by, like, like you know, in other words, insofar as the president controls the military, any use of the military is is not impeachable on the part of the president. Um, that was kind of his argument. Yeah, and I don't think there's anybody who believes that yeah, except I don't think so President either. Trump um, <laughs> right. and, and his, his his closest allies. Yes. So um, one of the articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon that was approved on a bipartisan basis, but never formally pursued because uh, he resigned, what was obstruction of justice in his efforts to block yes. the investigation uh, of, of uh, the illegal wiretap and break-in and all of those those other activities. So I don't, I, I don't think that that's right. Now, I do think that there may be a higher bar for abuse of power when you have a power that is expressly given to the president. Yeah, an enumerated power or something like that in the right. Constitution. But, yeah. but but the Constitution also prohibits bribery. Yes. And so, yes. Um, uh, you know, the president has absolute power to pardon. That's yes. expressly given. But I think that if the president were to accept a bribe in order to pardon someone, uh, that would be an impeachable offense. As we know, there there are some judges on at least on the Supreme Court that identify as originalists. From my understanding, uh, originalists of I guess Scalia's uh, cut de-emphasize the use of strict scrutiny in order to determine some of these cases uh, or those sort of legal principles and and go more off of uh, original interpret or textual interpretation. The text itself is not all that clear uh, in responding to these sorts of novel cases. First of all, there are many different kinds of originalism, yeah. um, and not all kinds of originalism look at the same things. I think that the um, current, what I would call conservative take on originalism, looks at the original public meaning of the text. And so there's a close connection to what the text of the Constitution says. And then when the text, the meaning of the text is unclear, you look at historical sources to understand what the ratifiers of the Constitution would have thought they were ratifying. But just to give you an example of another form of originalism, as originally posited, originalism looked for the original intent right. of the Constitution. Yeah, right which is a more subjective question about what the people who wrote it meant, rather than a question about what the meaning of the text was as uh, uh, understood by those who ratified it. So both of those are forms of originalism, but they are uh, quite different in the kinds of questions that they ask. Now, it's also important to recognize 
that meaning as a, as a kind of semantic, linguistic matter in dealing with a, a, a doctrine like or a, a text like the Constitution occurs at many levels. Um, right. So um, if we take, uh, let's take something like the Equal Protection Clause, just as an example. Um, it, the text of the Constitution is written very broadly. It says, no state shall deny any person within its jurisdiction equal protection of the laws. We also know that when it was adopted, the understanding was that this was primarily dealing with racial discrimination and the denial of legal rights to, to uh, freed slaves. So if, if at the same time, we also know that the, the, the framers of the 14th Amendment chose much broader language. They, did. they didn't say no one can deny legal rights to newly freed slaves. They said no state can deny any person equal protection of the laws. So how do we decide which of the original meanings of this language is the correct constitutional one? Do we focus on as specific an understanding of what the text meant as it relates to a particular issue as possible? Or do we say, what was the principle that the text was understood to reflect? And then uh, how does that principle apply in this new and different circumstance? And to be quite honest with you, I've never seen an originalist that doesn't move fairly freely from one to the other as it suits their purpose. (laughs) Um, uh, So um, uh, beyond that, uh, as somebody who also studied history, I can tell you that history is very uh, strongly contested, um, and that uh, we just just like precedents and a body of case law, we 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 tend to see in history what we look for. It's a, it's a Rorschach test as much as it is an objective truth, um, and and so it's possible to look at that a re- historical record and see a lot of different meanings and infer from that a lot of different. Uh, potential outcomes. Now, um, the question you ask about strict scrutiny or levels of scrutiny and open-ended tests um, is, I think, related to but distinct from the question of historical originalism versus other modes of interpretation. So uh, Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas, other conservative justices uh, prefer an approach that we might call formalistic in uh, in legal analysis. And uh, formalism is characterized by uh, per se rules. So you're either in or out, and the result is dictated by clear, bright line tests one way or another. Um, and they oppose uh, more open-ended forms of analysis that require sort of value-laden judgments in in the application of particular tests. So they would prefer rules that are yes, no, uh, in, in or out. Now, again, this is just my observation, um, is, is that the formalistic approach gives the appearance of objectivity just like originalism tends to give an appearance of objectivity because you're sort of saying, here's the rule, and it applies and it dictates a result. Um, 
But deciding whether a particular case is in or out of the rule um, is one that is, you know, laden with judgment calls. And um, uh, moreover, as uh, strict per se rules are applied in case after case after case, there are often inconvenient results that the strict per se rule might lead to. And the result of that isn't, uh, often is not, we're going to apply the rule even though it produces a result we don't like, but rather we're going to create an exception, another per se rule. So the per se rule has a rule, but then there's an exception to the per se rule, and then there might be an exception to the exception. So you get the proliferation of a lot of very specific rules that give the illusion that there are clear answers, but ultimately the answers are are a subject of choice by the judge in how they choose to characterize the facts and which rule or where in the rule set they uh, plug the case in. And so I tend to think of those kinds of approaches as having every bit as much flexibility and discretion built into them as open-ended tests. I don't know whether that's responsive to your question, David, or not. Oh, no, it does. Um, And, yeah, one way I want to end this, and I I typically try to end our episodes, is um, asking what sort of takeaways do you think are important for our listeners to to take uh, from, from our discussion today? I guess the first thing I would encourage listeners to take away is anybody who says that there's an absolutely clear answer on any of these constitutional um, uh, questions is wrong. Um, So uh, I I think it's really common, and I get this a lot in my position. I get people from the general public who contact me about constitutional issues, and they tend to see things as black and white. And there are certainly some constitutional issues that are black and white, clear answer, but there are a very, very, very small percentage of the total number of questions. And the reality of it is the Constitution provides very few clear answers on these kinds of questions. They give you things to think about, and they tell you a a kind of framework for trying to decide, but ultimately uh, all constitutional decision-making requires judgment. Um, and is going to be influenced by the person who makes that judgment, that person's um, historical experience, ideological perspectives, values, et cetera. And, and it's not possible to have it any other way. Thank you, Richard. Um, with that, I want to thank you for being on our show today and having this discussion with us. Well, I, I hope that uh, you got what you wanted out of Absolutely. it in terms of these very complicated and difficult issues. Um, and uh, I, I hope that listeners also uh, learn a little bit. Yeah, this has been fantastic, very enlightening. We really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you, Mike, for joining me as my co-host today and, and really trying to tease out some of these very important issues. And with that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.